0: Hey guys, this is Robert Ritzenthaler with REM Capital. And if you wanna learn about recession-proof investing, highly recommend you listen to my good friend, Sam Newell. His podcast is called Recession Proof.
1: Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession proof. Robert, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited. I've been trying to get you on for months now. We just we're working on deals. We're, we're meeting up in Florida, Cincinnati. There's no time for podcasts, but I'm glad we finally got you on.
0: We have real work to do. <laughs> exactly, oh, <I> mean. <laughs> deals. So. Imagine that, imagine that.
1: For real. Well, hey man, this is a crazy, crazy time to be interviewing you and talking about the things we're gonna talk about today during the coronavirus pandemic, this black swan event that's absolutely crushing some investors has most people in a panic, and yeah. all of us completely in the dark with what's going to happen and where the market's going to head in the next three to four weeks, in the next six months, in the next couple of years. So uh, we're gonna get into that, but before we do, I just wanted to hear about Robert Ritzenthaler, your background, where were you in high school, where did you grow up, <laughs> and did you ever think you'd be buying large multifamily properties?
0: Where was I in high school? I think I was living under a rock down by the river. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: I'm just
0: kidding. Well, it's good to be here, man. Thanks, appreciate yeah.
1: it. Yeah. So, so you to you grew up in. Um, tell me where.
0: Yeah. So I actually grew up in North Dallas. I was that's born. Right. Yeah, I was born in Dixon, Illinois, which is actually the birthplace birthplace of uh, Ronald Reagan. So that's really my only claim to fame. <laughs> well, that's cool. I mean, I guess if you like Ronald Reagan, I don't know. Yeah,
1: uh, I think he was a pretty good president.
0: He was all right. Um, So yeah, I grew up in North Dallas and my dad was actually a home builder. So I grew up in the real estate business, not the real estate rental business, but in the real estate business. And I started out sweeping floors and I think I was seven or something like that. And then, you know, just kind of moved up, did all kinds of different stuff. When I was in, I guess, junior high, kind of early high school mm-hmm. i was doing a lot of stuff and you know making some decent money i think i think i start yeah i started working for free and then my first paycheck was like 25 cents an hour nice. <laughs> so, i thought i was that's loaded right. i'm like what i'm going to get paid that's awesome thanks Dad. <laughs> life of a builder uh,
1: builder son huh
0: yeah yeah but it was good to... You know, it's interesting because I, you don't realize how much you learn just by being around in an environment like that. Honestly, there's so many things that I look back even today. My dad went through the savings and loan crisis and it was one of those situations where 90% of the builders got wiped out and he was one of the few that survived. Wow. And the reason he survived was because he had equity in his deals. He did not over leverage. Okay. And, uh, you know, back when I was a kid, I remember saying, Dad, you know, why don't you have $100 million in houses? And why don't you own all this land? And why are you doing all he's like, Listen, I could do that. But if the tough times come, I'm getting wiped out. And that's not how I run my business. And so it's just kind of funny, you know, now looking back, and what we're doing with REM and how we're structuring it. And it's just, it's kind of funny how the Sometimes it comes full circle. You're like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. That is the way you want to run it.
1: <laughs>
0: so, but, I mean, I knew that back in 2008. I knew that back in 2001 and 2002. I mean, this is the third significant downturn, bear market, whatever you want to call it. And they're beginning to look fairly consistent. They happen for different reasons. They, they play out in different ways, but they come in pretty consistent patterns. So anyway, yeah, but they do. sorry to digress, but yeah, so North Dallas and grew up in the construction business, learned a lot. Really glad that I have that experience because as you know, with your current project, <laughs> um, it, it helps to kind of know the ins and outs of wiring and plumbing and flooring and roofs and all that stuff. Yep, um, it does. Sometimes that comes in handy. So I'm very thankful for that but uh, yeah, that was kind of good.
1: So, so in high school, what, you know, so here's what I was thinking about. I was going to join the air force Academy, become an F 16 fighter pilot or uh, you know, just f 15s, you know, I I wasn't too picky and and drop bombs on terrorists and, (laughs) and fight for America and, and, you know, be in the armed services. That's, that's what my grandpa did. And that's what I wanted to do. So what were your plans? I mean, were you planning on working in finance, working in real estate? What were you planning on?
0: Well, it's funny that you say, that's funny that we have that in common, really, because that is one of the things that I thought about. I always want to do is be a pilot. Cool. Now, I wasn't thinking about the bombs part. I just wanted to, (laughs) I just wanted to go, you know, 800 miles an hour in two seconds. That was really. You're thinking
1: Mach (laughs) 3, Mach 4, afterburners. I
0: wanted to be one of those guys that that took off from Kansas City, flew halfway around the globe, you know, did what they had to and were back in Kansas City for dinner. I thought that was cool. That's really cool. But no, I mean, I I think the other part of me back probably, actually, it was probably in junior high school, honestly. Mm -hmm. I started going to the library. I know people are going to think I'm such a weird nerd. But I was reading the Morningstar books, those big, thick, like, four inch books that they would publish every month and you could go through and look at all the mutual funds. (laughs) 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 Like who does that? So I would go there and I'd pick out the mutual funds that I wanted to invest in and I'd write them and I'd say, Hey, I want, I got some money I want to invest. And of course, you know, over time it become, became more electronic. Yeah. But yeah, I would take my money and I'd send them checks and they'd send me statements back on what I was making and I remember when I ventured out into an international, not international, what do you call it, um, outside of the US fund yeah. that was investing in Asia back in gosh, this would have been early 90s, I guess. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, I was like, "Oh man, I'm cutting edge. I'm I'm 16 years old and I've got mutual funds that are investing in Asia." <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but it was good and actually so kind of in a nutshell, that began to be more of my focus was just investing and learning about how to invest. I've okay. probably read half of the books that were written by or, or not by, but written about Warren Buffett and just his investing style. And yeah, I so just that- read his,
1: by the way, and you guys share a very nerdy commonality,
0: <laughs> which is a good
1: thing. Um, I wish I had more of it, but he would cattle. he read just like you at a very early age. He would catalog license plates at the age of six, <laughs> I think, driving by his house just because he thought awesome. it was fun. So you guys That's have awesome. that very big need for information, which I think is really cool. And, and a lot of people yeah. need more of that in them to uh, do well in investing.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a place for both sides, I think. But yeah, that was definitely something that I realized early on. Cool. Um, the funny thing that, that sort of the irony of this whole thing is that I went the engineering track. so. Uh-huh. I got into college at Carnegie Mellon on a full scholarship for electrical and mechanical engineering. Oh, cool. So that, that I thought that was going to be, did you really? No kidding.
1: Yeah. First two years at BYU were mechanical engineering.
0: No kidding. Look at that. Wow, man. No wonder we get along. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yeah. So I did that for, I think it was about a year and a half. And I remember looking around me, looking around the, you know, in the class where I was at, and, you know, these guys were building like the next defense department robot. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I was, I was just happy to have a robot that worked. <laughs> and I thought, okay, so I'm going to be an engineer. I'm probably going to be in the bottom 25%. <laughs> I'll still make a ton of money because, I mean, I'm at a top four school in the country.
1: Yeah.
0: But I was like, I don't know that investing, that, that still sounds kind of interesting. It's making me a lot of money. And uh, you know, interesting. So it, it's kind of funny because I I never put real estate together with investing. Yeah. Uh, literally until I was in New York City, and I had a buddy of mine that came to me and he said, Hey, listen, you need to come over here and help us out. We've got this really cool company. You know, we're doing real estate, and you've done real estate. You should do it. And I was like, Why should I do that? Wall Street place to be. You know. Yeah. So that was kind of the the ironic twist about getting out of engineering moving over into investing and then eventually moving to investing in multifamily.
1: This is crazy. So I was in my second year mechanical engineering. One of my teachers worked for Boeing. One of them worked for Pratt & Whitney. And one of them was working on the F-16 and F-22 engines for the government. Nice. And a lot of my fellow students were getting jobs with those companies. And I was like, the exact same epiphany as you. Like I can do this, <laughs> but I'm gonna be like the bottom rung. Like I'm right. smart enough to get a job. I'm right. not smart enough to build the next new engine like these guys were. Right. And my my best friend said, "Hey, we ought to flip homes." This was 2000, like nine, nine, ten. And so I switched to construction management. Huh and i bought my first flip with the money i was making by doing summer sales and i realized i'm making 40-50,000 a summer selling pest control door to door to get an education to make 60,000, 70,000 a year working 12 months a year as an engineer and i don't think i'm going to like it that much right
0: <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting huh? you know, i had a very very similar epiphany and uh, so i switched to mechanic or to construction management and started flipping homes and doing real estate. So that's funny how our our stories are almost identical there.
0: That's cool. That is funny. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. So, so you went
1: from yeah, you went from Wall Street, which is pretty cool, investing, and this guy told you, "Hey, let's just like my buddy told me, hey, you got to get into real estate."
0: Well, it's kind of funny because I initially, you know, I was like, whatever, you know, you make a lot more money in the hedge fund business and doing this stuff than you're going to make in real estate. And, you know, he's like, well, just, you know, come on over here. And it was actually a point in time where the market had crashed back in the, you know, the tech crash. Uh And so for me, it was kind of this situation where it was my first living in the middle of a market crash, Okay. And you feel like it's the end of the world, everything's done, you're never gonna, you know, everything you ever planned for is gone. Mm-hmm. Obviously it wasn't, but you know, psychologically speaking, that's what it felt like. Yeah. And so my buddy was like, he's like, whatever, you know what, shut up, get up, go to work, do something useful. <laughs> so so I did and I went to work for these two guys, awesome guys. I mean, a couple of the best guys that I've ever met in the business. They had just bought an eighty million dollar project. They needed somebody to come in and just kind of really just look at the books, look at the leases. I didn't even really know what I was doing, honestly. But,
1: but you're a I numbers was, guy.
0: But I, Yeah, I'm a numbers guy, pretty smart, figure it out, you know, whatever. So I went in there and I'll never forget the first week that I was there. I basically uncovered a quarter million dollars of rent that hadn't been collected just wow. due to I don't even know what. Just people not paying attention. Negligence, yeah yeah just yeah oversight and so i don't remember exactly what happened but long story short is the the partners were like okay who is this guy where did you get him from <laughs> you know? and so it just kind of grew from there and then they said you know what we want you to look at every single property in our entire portfolio <laughs> wow so did that didn't find as many you know not as much low hanging fruit but sure um, what
1: kind of properties were these though
0: well it was multifamily and office so they were doing everything from buying stabilized to buying non-stabilized to buying office and gutting it and turning it into apartments just pretty much anything in that space. True entrepreneurs in that sense. Cool. And so yeah, looked at all that and then, you know, just kind of obviously it, as you and I know, you find a good person and you you keep them moving up the ladder and give them more responsibility. So I just kind of right. moved up from there and had a really really good experience. And I think too, you know, going through that downturn and kind of seeing how they handled things is also part of what's given me some of the confidence to do what we're doing even before the current times. Yeah. yeah. Where you plan ahead, you know, you don't you don't run things right to the wall. So it's kind of funny how that all, all came together. But I remember distinctly, I'll never forget, you know, when you're young and you're stupid. And I remember them coming to me and saying, okay, Robert, we want to offer you a full-time position with the company and at the time I think they I think they wanted to offer me Uh 60,000 which pretty good money honestly it was of course I thought I could make a quarter million dollars you know going back into trading and all that nonsense and so I was like no no I don't want to do it whatever that's that's a waste of time I mean I was a total I really was I was probably a total jerk (laughs) I could see that thanks thanks (laughs) And so my same thing, my buddy came back. And he's like, uh, you should think about that. These are really good guys. They're doing a lot of good stuff. Great opportunity. And so, of course, long story short is I, I accepted it. And I'm very glad that I did and, um, cool. you know, grew with them. But yeah.
1: And how long were fun. you with them?
0: So I was there from 99 till 2005. And okay. uh, then '05 is when I moved to Tampa. I think it was '05. Yeah, 05, 06, something like that. Moved to Tampa. I went to work for a REIT. Down here, pretty large REIT, they had about four billion under management. I think they're up to about seven billion now, wow. and handled kind of the asset management side of the business for them, mainly in the Tampa division. Okay. And, then,
1: um, and they were also multifamily.
0: They were mainly focused on office space. I mean, a little retail, warehouse, industrial, but mainly office space. Got it. Uh, but they had just acquired a whole bunch of divisions all around the con- all, well, not divisions. they had acquired a bunch of other companies around the country. And so they were kind of bringing those in and working on putting everything together, systems in place. So that was a good experience. Did some development with them. That was fun too. Just kind of- What kind of development? Office development. Okay. So cutting through the red tape and getting stuff done. And that was a lot of fun. Probably could have continued on with them, but they were based in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Uh you know, as you know, kind of moving up the corporate ladder, if you want to sort of keep that track. You kind of got to go to headquarters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I had like decided Tampa, that I wanted and the weather. Yeah. I Like Tampa, I like the weather family had all moved here when I moved. So it's kind of one of those okay. things where I said, well, you know what? I think I'm going to stick it out here in Tampa. And you know, it's funny because it's not that long ago, but the ability to work remote, it really wasn't even a concept. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're not old, but yeah, I mean, the whole concept is really relatively brand new. Yeah,
1: so, Zoom and Skype and all this has absolutely changed the way people do business.
0: It's amazing. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So and, um and so
1: did you go out on your own or what'd you do what'd you do then? And what year was that? Yeah,
0: so I went out on my own and really kind of took a totally different direction. So initially I was thinking I was going to do some development on the side on my own. And that was, you know, 05, of 07, stuff was starting to fall apart. Not the best time to be in the development business.
1: Right, <laughs> to say the least.
0: Yeah. So I actually said, okay, you know what, I'll change tracks and I'll kind of go back a little bit more towards what I was doing previously, investing in businesses, but rather than investing in a big company, I'll invest in a smaller one and partner up with somebody and do it that way. So I did that. The lesson that I learned, probably the hardest lesson that I've ever had to learn was picking the wrong partner, ended up being a fraudster, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, not a not necessarily intentionally, but just had a gambling addiction. Was stealing oh. money from the company, and well, that's, uh,
1: that's pretty intentional. Stealing money from the company, it's not. Yet.
0: It, it, it. I mean, it. It's not like somebody that was sitting here saying, "Okay, how can I take this guy's money and steal it?" Right. But he he had an addiction, and it led to a lot of really, uh, really tough consequences for me, for the company, for you know himself too. Got it. So long story short, pretty much lost everything in about a month. Wow. Um, Holy cow. That was pretty rough. Good thing is I learned some very valuable lessons. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's part of the reason why now I take my time when it comes to picking partners and getting to know people. And sometimes people get annoyed with me because they're like, man, you take so long. <laughs> <laughs> It's needed. Um, it it is, and I think you know if you're building something for the long term and you really want to make it sustainable, it's important to do that. Make sure your your values are aligned. So, Absolutely. Yeah, it was a tough lesson, but you know I've heard it said many times that entrepreneurs usually need to fall on their phases at least two or three times before they finally hit their stride. <laughs> so
1: there, there's things you just can't learn in school. I mean, there's there's yeah. lessons about people, about doing deals. You just can't learn in a seminar. You can't learn at school. So that yeah. was about 2006, seven, eight. So I'm curious. I mean, Florida was hit hard. We're going through yeah. the corona panic right now. I'm curious because I was not as aware of what was going on because I was just in school then. So what did you see as far as panic and people's attitudes towards the market and jobs? And I mean, how is yeah. it similar to today's market as far as like sheer panic that's just going on.
0: Well, it is interesting because in these cycles it's just fascinating how they really do repeat themselves, but I remember it was let's see 11 12, you know, I mean we were 2 years into it and the bottom had basically fallen out. Uh-huh. You were still kind of scared because you're like, well gosh, I don't know, it could go down another 20% and how then what? Work
1: and go, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Know? I was so bummed at what happened because I could have you know, I would have been able to take all that money, invest it in 10, 11, 12 and make a killing. So, I mean, I I lost everything and then really busted my tail to put some money back together, started buying back in 2012. And of course, you know, everybody did well that bought back in 2012 or 13 or whatever, you know. But yeah, it is interesting because the psychology was very similar. You know, you initially... It was, it wasn't necessarily denial. It was just like, Oh yeah, you know, not a big deal. And then the fear really starts to set in. And so that's where I'm looking out even right now and saying, you know, people are saying, Oh, there's going to be great deals are great deals. If this really happens, those great deals are going to get even better in six to 12 months from now. Right. And so there's no need to rush. There's no need to, you know, like run off a cliff trying to find these great deals. If it really happens, they'll be there. Keep your Um, money
1: right. Keep your powder dry. And exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are just unsure of what's going to happen. I think if Corona keeps us not working for another few weeks, it's going to cause some serious issues with the market. I'm already seeing deals fall apart. You know, I'm a realtor and selling deals, and deals are falling apart, and and it's crazy. So I I don't know. I think it could have some serious effects, and and that kind of springboards us into our major topic that I wanted to talk about today. You and I have, have done a couple deals together. Now we've looked at a lot of deals together. One thing I really wanted you to explain is stress testing, Hmm. what it is that we do when we stress test a deal, What's the definition of stress testing and what metrics do we look at and and where are our numbers as far as the minimum standards when we stress test a deal?
0: Yeah, that's, that has become the, uh, the buzzword, <laughs> and some people and actually, don't even know what it is. That's true. That's true. Actually, it's kind of funny too because I've had people calling me or emailing me saying, "Well, what are we? What are we doing to be prepared for what's coming? The coronavirus, blah blah blah." And I actually wrote somebody back the other day, and I said, "Well, I'm not trying to be flippant or rude, but it's too late to do that." Oh yeah. Way if you too didn't late. plan ahead you're probably going to get caught. And so, you know, unfortunately, you rarely get credit for being that guy or that team, but I know it's the right thing to do. And yes, you're absolutely right. Stress is important. So not to belabor the point, but to get to specifics, one of the things that we've been doing since day one is stress testing our deals so that day one, when we take over, we could survive a 25% reduction in rent. Occupancy, whatever—a twenty-five percent reduction in income, exactly. Right. And the way we came to that number was by looking at all the markets that we're involved in, or, or I should say, all the target markets that we have, mm-hmm. and going back to 2008 and saying, okay, where did this level out? Typically, it leveled out at about a 15 percent drop. Right. So we're thinking, okay, you know, maybe a pandemic happens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is what we were thinking a year, two, three, four right. years ago. You know, what, what could happen?
0: Right. So let's go to 25%, you know, let's push it an extra 10% just to be careful. Yeah. And obviously we're very glad that we did that at this point because who knows what's going to happen. Right.
1: But. Right. Well, I want to reiterate what you just said. So when we're looking at a deal, let's say let's take Cincinnati for example where we both just put money in, a lot of our investors just put money into that deal. People mm-hmm. were asking me, "Hey, are we okay?" and I said, "Look, we, we planned for this what we did is we looked at the numbers we said here's the gross income yeah. here's our expenses where is our net income and what if and where's our debt service what if our gross income drops by 25 percent can we still pay the expenses and can we still pay the mortgage right that is that is exactly what we're talking about and when i went through and i explained it to a few of our investors and i said look this cincinnati deal Actually, even at 30%, I think the official number is what,
0: 33? 33, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. actually one of the best stress-tested deals.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so even at yeah. a 33% drop in gross income, we're still breaking even yep. and paying for ourselves. Plus, here's the other cool thing that, that you and I do on all the deals that we do. We still have three to six months of working capital set aside mm-hmm. the day that we buy it. Plus Mm -hmm. money set aside for capital expenditures and a large rehab budget. So we have a huge amount of money set aside already. Plus we could, we could have some serious vacancy. So right now I'm actually going to share my screen. I kind of want to show people what we're looking at every single day right now. Can you see my screen? Okay.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yep.
1: Annie, Freddie offer multifamily landlords a break. So that's good. Oh, Nice. (laughs) But I mean, there's all types of news where, and a lot of this is, I feel like the media benefiting from what's going on. I mean, billionaire coronavirus put real estate on brink of collapse. I think the people that are benefiting from the coronavirus is the media. They're getting clicks. They're getting huge amount of views and they're creating as much panic as they possibly can because they get paid. Look. (laughs) I mean, they have ads popping up all over the place because they're going to get paid every time someone sits at home and watches MSNBC or NBC or whatever, goes online. So that's the thing I'm frustrated with. But there's a serious amount of negative news about what's going on. And it's kind of fun to be able to say, we planned for this. Mm Mm-hmm we don't know for sure what's going to happen. You know, there could be some other black swan event. It could be a war on top of a pandemic on top of coronavirus. It could be who knows, but at least we know we have a pretty darn big margin to play with.
0: Right. It's true. Well, the thing is too, and I don't, I don't mean to sound this negative, but you look back at 1929. Uh So uh, Wall Street basically had to get bailed out by JP Morgan. Uh-huh now, at some point, he would have run out of money as well had it right. gotten to a certain point. right So I always look at it and I say, we can't have unlimited fudge factor. The goal is if we are the last man standing, we made it. That's yep. the goal. And so you know again, I mean you can't raise fifty million dollars for a 10 million dollar deal.
1: <laughs> yeah right but.
0: Do you, do you use your brain and be realistic about what could happen? Put in some fudge factor exactly like you're talking about. And at the end of the day, it puts you in a great position because, you know, people even ask about the current deals and they say, well, why don't you just, you know, they're they're all going to fall apart. What's going to happen? I'm like, well, let's think about this. People still have to live Mm -hmm. in a, in, you know, they live somewhere. So we have a shortage of multifamily housing in America. Yep. If anything, this will increase that disparity
1: yep. because
0: people are not going to want to build. The yep. numbers are not going to want to work, not going to work. So we've got a supply and demand that's going in our favor. Now, again, temporary market factors are going to push that around, but long-term, right. that trend is still there.
1: I, I wanted to talk about our asset class. I mean, hmm. this is why we're not in luxury housing or luxury apartments. Right. I mean, luxury housing in Seattle, if you look at the rents just in the last month, they're seeing huge vacancy and huge rent drops. And that's going to happen across the country. And that's why we're not in D-class, other than the hotel I own, um, that's why we're not in D-class uh, housing because they don't care about the credit, they're not gonna pay rent, they don't, they don't yeah. care. So if you're a C or B-class owner, I mean, you're exactly right. Your demand is going up, people still need a place to live, and I think you're gonna do fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. and, and by the way, how did B and C class properties do in the re- last recession? They did the best right. out of all other asset
0: classes. Right. So. They did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, sorry. Well, and it, no, 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 no. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. That's very valid. I think the other thing that's really important, which comes back to the data side of things, is knowing your market and knowing what drives your market. Yeah. I mean, without necessarily planning for a pandemic per se. Mm -hmm. As you know, when we talk about which markets we want to be involved in and which areas of those markets, we look at the job base. And, you know, Cincy, great example. We've got Amazon. They just announced they're hiring 100,000 people. They're putting in a $2 billion (laughs) expansion on their hub. We've already got 40 people that live in Cincy that work for Amazon. We're probably going to have more people coming up, you know. Just Um, in our deal, right? Exactly. Just there. Exactly. Um, You've got Procter & Gamble. I mean, they're headquartered there. They make toilet paper. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing, uh, they're, they're doing
1: great. They're probably adding a couple employees.
0: They're busy. Wipes, toilet paper, you you know all that stuff. You know we've got Kroger. They're based there. Everybody's buying groceries. So you've got healthcare. Healthcare is going to be going gangbusters. I mean, I don't mean to sound like we're trying to take advantage of, of a situation, but the fact is, somebody nurses has to need a place to that. live.
1: They're probably going to have to hire a bunch of nurses and a bunch of mm-hmm. low-level staff. And there's three right. hospitals within 15 minutes of our Cincinnati deal.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it is important to think about all this ahead of time because you can't predict the future, but you could certainly try to mitigate what may come down the pike. <laughs> right.
1: Right. Well, and, and it's the yeah. reason we're not in in West Texas as of yet, because yeah. prices haven't been good enough to be able to stress test those deals and come out positive.
0: You know, well, right now and they,
1: they're getting crushed. No, go yeah. ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say and they haven't been good enough at least from my perspective to justify taking the risk right. that my market is 50 to 70% based on an argument between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Right. I mean, are you right. kidding me? I don't yeah. want anything to do it. You want me to go out there? I need a serious premium on my money. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so-
1: Exactly. Well, and so like that's why we bought the hotel. They're getting crushed, Farmington, New Mexico, um, because Mm. of Texas. You know, West Texas can basically make oil, make oil, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) do oil drilling and and gas for so much less money than anyone anywhere else in the world. Farmington, you know, Shreveport, Louisiana, and North Dakota—they're getting crushed. So we saw Mm -hmm. that. We saw this deal, and I said, "I hate this deal." It, they were asking a million bucks. I said, I wouldn't, ne- I wouldn't pay, you know, we made a couple offers and we, we fell a contract and I just said, no, it doesn't stress test. us. We ended up getting it for such a low price that finally I said, okay, they're in a recession, oil's crushing them, natural gas. Finally that the price made sense. But until I got to that number, there was no way I was ever going to consider buying in a place that was so affected by oil or or some right. type of one singular aspect like oil, or like you said, the, the oil fighting between uh, Russia and, and right. Saudi Arabia or, or whoever. But, so, so I thought that's you why said they paid the you
0: to take that hotel. What's that? <laughs> I thought you said they paid you to take the hotel. <laughs> they paid, get this,
1: they paid more to the bank at mm. closing than we paid them to, to buy it. Ouch. So they wrote a check for 1.5 million because that's what they owed on it. Wow. And we wrote them a check for uh, way less than that to buy it. Nice, nice. So, anyways, that, that's the type of deal you have to look for if you're looking in a West Texas, a Shreveport, like you guys right. just closed on 403 doors in Shreveport, but that was it. I mean, you bought it for what, three million less than he paid for it?
0: And that was uh, a Four deal. million, Four almost million. five million less, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It didn't make sense unless you really lowered the risk down to a point where I hesitate to say, unless you're a complete idiot, you could make money at it. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, there is risk involved in it. So I wouldn't say that's a normal project, but yeah, I think absolutely your risk and reward have to be commensurate or else it doesn't make sense. Yeah.
1: I mean, a typical market like Salt Lake city, we're always looking there, Boise, Cincinnati, Cleveland, I mean, Atlanta, there's got to be some good Fortune 500 companies or similar, mm-hmm. and you have to have a diverse job market. Cincinnati Absolutely. is eight Fortune 500 companies plus Amazon uh, building an air hub there. So I mean, yeah. and Cleveland, they they make toilet paper, right? I mean, they've got, they've got <laughs> some extremely recession resistant employers there as well. And they're doing yeah. great right now. But I'm just kind of curious, what else do we look for? What else have we talked to our investors about that is now coming to fruition as far as our underwriting, as far as the deals that we're doing. What else can you think of?
0: Well, I know one of the things that we are fairly conservative on, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, you know, a pandemic per se, but when it comes to estimating our taxes, mm-hmm. that's a number that a lot of people play with and they kind of roll the dice and say, well, maybe we get caught, maybe we don't, so let's just hope we don't. Yeah. We're saying maybe we don't, maybe we do. Let's assume we do. <laughs> and on we do, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if we keep an extra $100,000 in the bank one year, awesome. That's great. That's a bonus. So that's just a different in perspective. And I think that's important because, you know, if you, if you run everything out to the very limit, then you don't have that fudge factor. So that's another area. I think another thing that I've discussed with lenders, with other buyers, is just how much money we set aside to do our improvements ironically, in the last few weeks, a lot of people said, oh, are you just going to cut out all your improvements? And I said, no, why would I do that? Now, I understand their thinking, they're thinking about it from a short term fix and flip. Hey, right. you buy, you flip, you know, you, you improve, you flip. It's that, it's that model of, of kind of the single family model. But that's not what we're doing. No. And we could, but it's a high risk strategy. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at that long term buy and hold, lower the risk. Cash flow model. And if you're doing that, you really have to think about the value of your property. You can't just think about flipping it. You got to think about the value that you're adding to your residence. You got to think about the literally the physical value of that building. If it's going yeah. down, um, just because the market happens to bail you out, that's a short-term strategy.
1: And you don't want to be you know? the, let's say vacancy does go up you need to be able to compete you need to have a nice building you need to do the repairs mm-hmm. that you should i mean when you and yeah. i were walking through florida the deal in in bradenton and i think one investor i think he said he did took it the wrong way but i, I was laughing because this this guy was walking through asking me hey do you work here this place is garbage the management management is terrible they're not doing the repairs they should and i was just like this is perfect i couldn't have scripted it any better because the current owner wasn't doing the repairs he should. He couldn't compete with the other local, you know, um, apartments that were for rent. And his, his right. renters were very frustrated. They were not mm-hmm. happy about paying what they were having to pay and, and the condition. Yeah. He was in. And that's the type of deal we look for. And he probably could have sold it for what? A couple million more if he had just done those improvements?
0: Something like that, probably. Yeah. So, I mean, that's good for kind us. of what we're hoping. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, we're not going to flip it, but we're going to get the cash flow. No, we'll yeah.
1: get great cash flow and, and we'll actually yeah. have happy tenants. We'll have mm-hmm. obviously a different, way better manager in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we look for. We look for deals that haven't been taken care of, the the improvements haven't been done. And and Robert, maybe what would be good for our listeners is to hear kind of how you explain your, our business model. So we're syndicators, we're buying properties, mm. we're returning and uh, or giving a return to our investors, but, we don't have a ton of time left, and I know you're a busy guy, but, but just explain the process to us a little bit. We've talked about being very, very recession-proof and trying to be conservative and, and buying deals for the long-term, not the short-term, but explain to us, in your own words, what you're actually doing, and, and what is a syndication, and, and what is REM capital?
0: The model you're talking about, yeah. kind of the investment model. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question because it is somewhat unique, I think, based off that long-term buy-and-hold model. Mm-hmm. and the goal is, I would say, twofold. So number one, obviously, we're trying to generate multiple streams of cash flow, as opposed to flip a property, get a check, flip a property, get a check. We want to invest in a property, get a stream of cash flow, get our equity back out, get another stream of cash flow. Now you've got two. Do it again. Now you've got three. Do it again. Now you got four. You get the point. The other side of that, and again, this goes back to Warren Buffett's philosophy, is It's not always how much you make, it's how much you keep. Mm -hmm. So, is that strategy tax efficient? And if you look at what we're doing between the cost segregation studies, which accelerates depreciation, and the taking that equity out and rolling it into the next deal, you're talking about an extremely tax efficient strategy. Mm -hmm. So, where if you do a fix and flip type model, you're gonna be, let's say you get a 20% return and then you've gotta give 20% back. Well, you really got a 16% return. Yeah. You could do another deal and keep your 16, and actually, you're going to come out the same, maybe even better, because you don't have transaction fees and acquisition fees and lender cost, you know, all that stuff. So there's some of these soft, well, they're not soft costs; they're hard costs, but they're behind the scenes, you know, that I think some people don't think about. So yeah, our goal really at the end of the day is, you know, let's just say you put in 100 grand within five years. We want to get that hundred thousand back, whether it's through distributions or some sort of a refinance or supplemental. So now you've got that initial investment off the table. So you now own a piece of a of, of a property, a cash flowing property, essentially risk free. It's an infinite return. Yeah. You're getting cash flow, you're getting upside, you're getting tax benefits, no risk. Right. Then you take that hundred thousand, reinvest to the next deal and do the same thing over again. And of course, you know keep multiplying that over time. And of course, if you can put in 100,000 every year, when you get to year five, then it's like, boom, all of a sudden this goes from five to 10 to 20 to 40. I mean, it, it just really multiplies. So, yeah. And the model makes a ton of sense. I, I don't know
1: mm-hmm. of a better risk adjusted tax adjusted return <laughs> that you yeah. could possibly make.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of incentives to do it this way. Mm-hmm. But it's a longer term strategy. And I think a lot of people get distracted by the sort of the shiny penny today. You know, I can get my 10 bucks. I'm rolling my eyes
1: right now (laughs) because it's so frustrating. These people, we we call them, they're, they're chasing yields, you know, they're they're just chasing that high cap rate. They're chasing a pretty offering memorandum that looks sexy because they want this, you know, a return, Get me a return that, you know, that's better than every other return out there. And while we're getting, amazing returns, we're not going to promise
0: something that just
1: really isn't possible.
0: Right, right. Well, and I think you have to be realistic. And we, you know, you and I have been through this same conversation. You have to be realistic about the fact that if you're going to raise more money than the next guy, and you're going to have less leverage than the next guy, even if you have the same exact deal, you're able to get just as good of a deal, you're going to have a little low return. So, people have to value that. They have to say, yes, that's where I want to be. I want to be with somebody who's a little bit more conservative and they're not going to be blown out of the water because of a one month pandemic. Right. <laughs> <So>. Well,
1: <laughs> let me let me backtrace and kind of repeat a little bit what you just said and clarify for our listeners, because this is really important. And, and the whole reason I'm I'm getting out of selling real estate and have been for the last three years is because I want these these loyal investors, these friends, these clients of Mm -hmm. mine to look at things much more long-term. I started getting extremely nervous about watching these investors of mine chase yields, chase cap rates, and buy deals that I started to feel uncomfortable about them buying. And I started asking questions like, hey, do you guys have six months of mortgages saved up? And they would say, oh, no, no, no. Like, it's fine. Or or I'd have an investor saying, you know what, I'm fine if it negative cash flows, I could use the losses on my my taxes. And I'm like, what? So you're knowingly, you're buying negative cash flow deals just because you need a loss, you know? And and so that's what takes us into syndication and buying large multifamily assets for long-term. Because I felt Hmm. like if I could move my friends and my clients and, and my loyal investors to that asset class and that specific strategy, personally, I'd feel 100 times better for the next recession. And this is the exact reason I got into syndication. I said, for the next recession, I don't want to be the realtor that says, oops, sorry, I sold you something that you're now losing to the bank because it Mm -hmm. wasn't stress tested and it wasn't a good investment. That's what I didn't want. And I panicked three years ago when I saw this starting to happen. These investors Mm -hmm. getting way too aggressive and not caring. So. So let's break this down. REM Capital, Robert, you and and your team, and and I'm involved in that and and I'm excited to be involved in that. We look for, you look for multifamily properties. And when we say multifamily, 100 units or more preferably Mm -hmm. that are existing, built Mm -hmm. A and B Mm -hmm. class or B and C class, A if we can, but usually we can't afford to pay those prices, which means it's 10, 15 to 30 or 40 years old in yep. at least a decent location we love a great location but we don't do war zones you know so no gangs and and drugs and violence but it it can be working class so what rem capital is going to do is is buy that with investors money and some of your own money you're going to manage the property manager you're going to be in charge of raising all the money closing on the loan the long term uh, non-recourse financing. You're going to be in charge of rehabbing the units, raising the rents, and every quarter you send a return to your investors, who are the limited partners. They have, they have basically no responsibility in the deal. They have no day-to-day requirements as far as managing the deal, and their risk is limited to the money they put in the deal. As far as legally, Correct. they have no risk. They have no risk as far as the mortgage goes. They're not on the loan. Add anything to that that you think I missed.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. I was just going to add in terms of the property class, we're looking for a C that could move to a B or a B yep. that can move to an A. That's that's really the, the upside, if you will. Now, going forward in the next six to 12 months, we might be able to find some B <laughs> properties that are going to stay at a B level and yeah. they're selling at a discount. So we can actually right. just keep them there. Right. We'll see. But, you know.
1: Yeah, so, so we're looking for an opportunity. We're looking for, quote unquote, an upside. So either mm-hmm. it's being mismanaged, which is a lot of the times the case. The Dallas deal is a great example of that. He didn't open mm-hmm. the pool for two years because he didn't want, right. to, just didn't want to go through the effort. So we're looking for something that we can do without relying on the market just going up. So right. let's say the market stays flat. What can we do so we can repair the units, make them look better, we can repair the property, make the property look better. We can do better advertising, better management to yep. raise the rents and improve the facility for the tenants. I guarantee you the Dallas tenants are really excited to have a functioning pool right—you know this summer coming up. So there's things that we can do to make it a better community and a better property and at the end of the day, better for the residents who live there and a great return for the investors who put money in that deal.
0: And I think Dallas is a great example because They were running that and they were struggling to get 94% occupancy at a, you know, a decent rental rate, but it was low.
1: And a great location too. I mean, it's, that's the great great location.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that we're in the same location as they were. So nothing changed there. Um, We actually haven't even completed all the renovations, but we brought in better management and we have, I think we've shown that we care about the resident genuinely, not just in words, but like, Hey, we care about you. We care about the complex and we've raised the rents $250. Wow. And we are a hundred percent occupied. Holy cow. Same location. You know, not, we still have capex to do. We still have money that needs to be spent. I and mean, we, we don't have enough. We, we can't kick everybody out. We don't want to kick them out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Same market. Now our competitors are still at 93, 94, 95% occupied. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just a really good example of why there's always opportunity in the, in the multifamily real estate market. It depends on who you're, you know, who you're, who you're aligning with. I mean, not everybody's going to do that. Obviously there's going to be people that don't know what they're doing, but that's a really powerful story. I think of why it's so important to know what you're doing. And if you do, there are always opportunities out there. So You know, people say, well, there's so many people in the market and they bought all these properties and what's the opportunity left? There's well, trust me, <laughs> there's, it, it kind of goes back to our example of engineering. Yeah. There's always going to be that top tier and the bottom tier. We want to be the top tier. And so we're always going to be looking for properties that are being managed and owned by the bottom tier. And we're going right. to take them from bottom to the top. I
1: love that example because in,
0: in engineering, I knew I
1: wasn't going to be the smartest guy, the smartest engineer, the best engineer. In real estate, it's controllable. I mean, you have to be pretty smart, but at the end of the day, we have minimum standards that we've set, and we know how to operate a property really, really, really well. We have the best marketing, the best property managers, and there's so many people I see buying these deals that don't pay attention to the details. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to manage a multifamily property. I have years of flipping and managing properties on my own for my own portfolio. I now manage a hotel and run a hotel. So there's lots of people buying these deals and it goes back to why I was getting out of real estate because it scared me. The people buying these deals and and it doesn't stop with syndicators. There's syndicators buying deals that they should not be buying and there's people that own deals currently that they're just not doing a great job. And here's the crazy thing, some of them bought deals in 2000, 9, 10, 11, 12, and they actually don't have to do a good job to make an insane amount of money. So they're not, and they're going to sell it to us at a discount. But for them, they're still making millions because they bought it in a great time. And, and so we're taking advantage of that. But the, the point I, or the reason I wanted to have you on today was because we have investors giving us millions of dollars right now. And I really wanted to introduce them to you, which you're really the quote unquote operator. And in any syndication or fund, that's what you're investing in. You're investing in deals. Cincinnati is a great deal. I'm excited to to have, you know, I, we've put a ton of money into that through our investors and it's a great deal. But at the end of the day, it's all about the operator. And Grant Cardone does this and he just laid off, I think half of his employees. Yeah. And that scares me because you can't get your money back out of his deals. I mean, he doesn't have a buyout yeah. clause and, Right. And he just may decide not to pay people. I I don't know. I think he's smart and he's probably not going to do anything crazy, but there's other syndicators that, you know, are going to have issues. So when you invest with an REM capital or with me and, and my partners, you really have to vet the operator. The deal is very important and you must ask about stress testing and you must ask about the business plan. But I really wanted to hear about your experience so that our investors will know who is Robert and who is the REM team and, and why do they have a leg up on the market. And it's because of your experience, mm-hmm. knowledge, and, and your minimum standards.
0: No, I think that's a great point. I like to use the example, yeah, you may have heard me tell it, of you know a car. Obviously, you can pretty easily see the difference between a Ferrari and let's just say a minivan. I don't know, you know, just... Mm-hmm throwing things out there. So we could say, yeah. okay, the minivan's a little slower, it's, you know, family, Ferrari's faster, et cetera. So you could it's fairly easy to see that. But on the flip side, just saying that, okay, a Ferrari is more dangerous than a minivan or vice versa, doesn't take into consideration the person that's actually driving the car. Right. So what I like to say is let's just take a Ferrari and you hand, you know, I hand the keys to my 10 year old son and I say, Hey, go down to the grocery store. Good luck. I I mean, he'd do okay. He's, he's a smart kid. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, that's pretty high risk. Yeah. You give the keys to a race car driver who professionally drives a Ferrari every day or whatever. And okay. All of a sudden the risk just changed. Same car, but the, but the operator was different. And so, yeah, to your point, I think it's, more important to vet the operator than it is the deal. Of course, the deal has to make sense, but yeah, yeah, more I mean, important. Yeah. You know? The
1: deal still has to make sense either way, but the operator, very, very important. So yeah. we talked about <clears throat> stress testing deals. We talked about what type of deals we're looking to buy and buying currently. What else should we talk about that people should know about REM Capital, should know about syndication or the deals that we're looking to buy? And And by the way, people we're not putting on the brakes. I mean, just like Robert said, we're not going to get crazy and try and buy a bunch of deals right now. We're still gonna buy a few deals this year and a few deals next year, and mm-hmm. and our numbers really aren't gonna change. Our stress testing isn't gonna change. We're still buying deals and interest rates are great, but Robert, what else do you think people should know about you, the operator, your company, or, or anything else?
0: Well, I think it, it sort of adding on to what you said about the operator, as you grow, the operator and the operator, of the team becomes as important. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, kind of having my experience with a bad partner situation. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, and, I had
1: an extremely similar bad partner situation. We're like twins. That's true. You <laughs> had a lot of same experiences.
0: <laughs> very true. But you know, it it can be a very learning experience, and I think it can yeah take us from naivety and sort of what should I say? You know, I mean, I know you well enough to know that you would never treat people's money flippantly. You would never do that. And I'm the same way. But there are certain things, there's experiences that kind of almost burn that into your brain. Yep. Um, And that's one of the things that I honestly, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't in this situation running my own real estate company 20 years ago. I really am. Yeah, Because I feel like at this point, there's a level of seriousness when it comes to investors' money that I didn't have 20 years ago. Got it. And I'm, I'm glad that I feel that way. And I think that's, that's the way your, your, your operator, your CEO, whatever, the leader of the organization, he should have that. That's important.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and yeah. this is why I'm so thankful for the last recession because mm. we have really a benchmark to compare to. Before mm-hmm. that, you didn't, you didn't, I mean, maybe to your credit, you've grown and, and matured a lot, but also you didn't have a 2008 recession 20 years ago to look at and say, where are my benchmarks? And we have a 2001, but, but really the 2008 recession, the great recession was an, an amazing learning, a lesson for us. And it's interesting to see how many investors and syndicators didn't learn from it. And that kind of scares me today.
0: Right. Or maybe they did, but you begin to think, eh, let's start rolling the dice a little more. (laughs) They're arrogant
1: enough to think that they won't be affected by the next one or the next one won't be as bad.
0: Well, and it's funny too, because you get both sides of the coin. You have some people, I've got friends, I've got some people that invested in, let's say, 11. And by 14, 15, they were like, this is insane. (laughs) I'm out. This is ridiculous. Yep. And I kept saying, okay, guys, yes and no, but you right. have to be driven by the data. Right. And so you don't know when this market is going to finally come to, a, come to a halt. 2020, five years later, it's coming to a halt or a temporary halt or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So is that a good strategy if you're handling investors' money and they need you to make money day in and day out? No, it's not. No. So, you know, again, no, if you want to roll the TV. dice, Exactly, exactly. So I think there's two sides of that coin. And I always like to mention that to people, you know, you need to be driven by data, you need to have experience, Um, you got to be diligent, you got to be conservative. And if you put those two together, then you should be all right. So anyway,
1: Here's the last thing I want to talk about. And I feel like it's one of the most important and then I'll let you go because we've been on for like an hour now. But I'm at Century 21 Everest, which is one of the number one Century 21 real estate brokerages in the world. And I'm there specifically because of the leadership and the positivity and the gratitude and the hope that they teach and preach. And I know you're mm-hmm. very, very similarly minded. By the way, your family's awesome. I was able to spend a couple of days with you guys. Love your kids. They're like, they're awesome. And your wife, Anna, is, is very cool as well. So, but I, I, I feel like you guys and your family are very similar. Rod is, is similar as far as gratitude. And especially in times like these, you have to have gratitude and not panic because yes, mm-hmm. um, I have deals falling apart. I've lost a lot of money this month in deals falling apart and it, it's not fun. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I have an awesome family, awesome friends and partners and gratitude and and staying positive and positive affirmations are the only way to really get through this. And, and you don't want to be negative and, and miss opportunities and, and miss a chance to help others. And And so I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? And, and as far as moving forward and staying positive through crazy
0: coronavirus (laughs) well I think you brought up a really good point and that is being able to help others in the in a time of need yep it's difficult to do that if you yourself are constantly living at the very edge of your means and I know we've you know joked about this um, and my dad has always you know pounded this into my head obviously because he lived it if you are so tight in the good times, you're going to be stressed out. Fear is going to be the number one driving force in your life in the, in even the slightest bad times. And so I think that's one of the things that I, this is a good opportunity to remind people say, Hey, this is why you leave Fudge Factor so that you can go to sleep at night, even in the middle of a pandemic, knowing that everything's going to be okay and it doesn't mean that your bank account's going to be perfect, but it means you're going to be okay.
1: Yeah. And
0: so it helps you make good decisions. And I think, like you said too, if you're so stressed out that you're just trying to maintain your own life, how can you help others? How can you help your family? How can you help those around you? You know, and understandably, yes, there's times where helping others could be helping those within your own business. And Absolutely. I think about that right now, you know, making sure that I, keep the business on track so that nobody has to worry about their job so that, you know, the, the employees at the site don't have to worry about their jobs so that the residents don't have to worry about things falling apart. You know, there's so many well, things. Well, that's why I brought up
1: Grant Cardone, not because I don't like him or think he's smart or very good at what he does, but he laid off 80 employees in the middle of coronavirus panic. I mean, mm-hmm. they were probably panicked enough. And then they got letters saying they're immediately terminated. So now they're looking for jobs in the middle of a pandemic. So I have a hotel and I actually just hired a guy that was laid off by his job as well. Hmm. And I said, Look, all the work I have for you is to remodel rooms. He was going from $80,000 a year to making nine bucks an hour remodeling some of my rooms. But guess what? He's very grateful for the job and he was excited yeah. to get to work yesterday. And yeah. I'm very thankful that I own a hotel and I'm letting a bunch of people live there for free right now. And I mean, um, it, it's pretty cool to be able to help people and and we have no debt on that investment. That was one of my criteria for buying that crazy <laughs> D-class in investment. I said, I will not have debt on this. So we no. don't. And we're actually nice. doing just fine. So, You
0: um, said people are living for free. I think I might need a vacation
1: in New Mexico. You don't want <laughs> to go there on vacation. Have you seen my <laughs> Facebook post? <laughs> yeah, I have. Once once we get it remodeled, you're welcome to stay there for free. But um, uh, no, there are people that are down and out with their luck. They're working in the oil yeah. fields or they're a mm-hmm. maintenance guy and they don't have any money. And we're exchanging, uh, ripping out nasty wet carpet from a roof leak for, you know, a couple nights, a couple nights stay at the Rimrock Lodge. So
0: there you anyways, go. Anyways, beautiful. Um, Love it. I'm,
1: I'm going to let you go for now. Any last thoughts for uh, our listeners? Anything else you want to add?
0: Last thoughts would be, it's been a pleasure working with you. Glad to be on here. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope we can do it again. So fun. Good. Get out there and spread the word. (laughs) Absolutely.